So the first thing to say is due to uh, scheduling choices that were not my own, um, some of you may have noticed if you're on the IR uh, uh, circulation list that there is an identically named uh, uh, presentation by me on Thursday at the IR colloquium. But don't worry, this is going to be basically completely different from that one. I will flag out the small area of overlap where there is that reflects the fact that they are both sides of the same project or the same general area of research that I'm working on at the moment, which... Uh, is an attempt, I suppose, to get to grips with perpetrator diversity in war crimes and uh, massive human rights abuses, genocide, and, and other forms of violence against civilians. Um, I thought what I'd do... So I hate it when people just read out papers. It seems completely pointless to me. Um, so I've organised instead a set of uh, uh, notes and structured thoughts. Forgive me if that interrupts my fluency, but hopefully it will actually make the talk more interesting in its delivery um, for you. I thought I'd begin by just saying where this fits into sort of my wider project. My general work is on um, the ideological dynamics of violence against civilians, um, as later said, um, and uh, I'm working on a book on this topic, and it's particularly on the issue of trying to theorise in a more sort of sustained way what the ideological beliefs of perpetrators of these sorts of crimes are that I'm focused on. And in particular, I think there's two very broad meta-objectives that kind of run through my work. Um, the first is to try and integrate the disparate existing work on this topic. I'm not making a claim that no one has engaged in sort of issues I'm interested in before, but it tends to be very fragmented. And in particular, one of the things I work on is trying to integrate the specialist ideology literature, which exists, it's interdisciplinary, it exists out there, happy to talk to people about that if they want, um, into work in international relations, sociology of violence, the kind of fields that focus on uh, human rights abuses and uh, genocide and mass atrocities. So that's one aim. And then the second aim is to sort of engage in a more sustained and comprehensive effort theory building than actors have so far. One of my arguments is that although lots of people focused on the sorts of issues I'm focused on say that ideology matters, they tend to mean something quite narrow by ideology. But I'll talk about that in, in just a second. Um, the final thing, a sort of pre preliminary comment that I wanted to make, is that I very much need help with this project. Um, what I'm presenting to you today is extremely uh, work in progress, work in progress. Um, and in particular, I have a relatively skirting, literate, but limited um, uh, literacy with the transitional justice literature. So to the degree that the problems that I'm outlining with the study of violence more generally uh, apply or don't apply to that field, I need your guidance on. I need help um, in that respect. Um, so the broad thing I want to talk about today, and the talk is called Unlike Minds, Ideology, Political Violence and Armed Conflict, is the diversity in perpetrator ideology in these sorts of crimes. Um, and I want to do that in three very broad sections, the last of which will be very short. Um, first of all, I want to talk about what I see as being problematic in the existing study of perpetrator ideology. Um, and then secondly, and for the bulk of the, the, the talk, I want to try and draw a series of distinctions between different things that ideology might do, and in particular, different sorts of perpetrators and different sorts of perpetrator ideology that might enable us to get to grips in a rather more empirically accurate way with the way in which people who commit massive human rights abuses um, are able to do what they do. Um, and then in the third section at the end, I want to tease out a little bit implications of, of, of what I've discussed and the sort of claims that I've been making. In particular, I'll try and focus in that, if I have time, on implications for issues like prevention, reconstruction, and transitional justice. Um, but certainly my thinking there is more limited than it has been on other, on other points. So the broad argument, my broad assessment of the existing literature is that 
after an initial period of broadly not really talking about ideology very much at all in fields like international relations or the sociology of violence, increasingly, and in particular in, in uh, the literature on mass atrocities, a lot of scholars now affirm that ideology must be important. Um, one of the leading theorists, Benjamin Valentino, has said, few scholars have failed to comment on the central role that ideology has played in some of the 20th century's bloodiest mass killings. Anyone who's familiar with the genocide scholar Scott Strauss, he's recent, written a very impressive review um, of the literature on political violence. And Strauss suggests that ideology is one of the two main variables that is now emphasised by social scientists in explaining mass political violence, the other one being war or armed conflict, that these two things together lead to mass atrocities and massive human rights abuses. So now it seems that most scholars are ready to acknowledge or indeed actively affirm that ideology matters in some sense, which I think is good because I also think that. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of problems in how understanding of ideology manifests in, in practice. In general, I think ideology within the literature on human rights abuses and mass atrocities remains under-theorised and unevenly studied. And I want to offer two sort of very broad narrative-like adjectives to describe what I see as the problem, namely narrowness and shallowness. So let's, I'll, I'll explain narrowness first. So my central concern is that most scholars writing about the role of ideology in uh, mass atrocities and human rights abuses tend to focus very narrowly on what it is that ideology might do. And I suggest that there are very broadly three main perspectives. The first perspective, the perspective that most actively emphasises ideology's role, I call endorsement models. Endorsement models. Endorsement models emphasise ideology. They suggest that perpetrators of human rights abuses actively endorse, believe in, quite sincerely, the ideological claims that, are, that surround or are associated with the human rights abuses in question. Um, so a classic instance of an endorsement theorist, albeit perhaps an extreme one, would be Daniel Goldhagen's work on the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Goldhagen believes that, bar extremely small numbers of exceptions, pretty much all Germans uniformly and enthusiastically and willingly endorsed Nazi ideology and the desire to eliminate all the Jews of Europe, or at least all Jews uh, in uh, the German sphere of Europe. Um, perhaps, as that might suggest to you, one of my problems with a lot of endorsement models is that they tend to portray ideology in a rather monolithic or untextured fashion. So the endorsement is broadly portrayed as being relatively uniform and in a relatively small number of ideas, usually bound up with fear, hatred and dehumanisation. More sophisticated models uh, exist, um, but also tend to focus narrowly, albeit in perhaps a more self-conscious way. So, for example, a theorist I'm a big fan of, Eric Weitz, has written a, a, an excellent book um, called Utopias and Century of Genocide, Utopias of Race and Nation, which focuses on the specific role that ideas of race and nationhood play in mass atrocities. Now, Weitz is not suggesting that that's the only components of ideology that might matter, but those are the ones he's focused on. Similarly, say, Charles Drake, for example, has written a very good article in 1998 on the role of ideology in terrorist target selection. Again, that's quite a narrow causal focus, one he is explicit about. He's not saying that the only thing ideology does is, um, focus, is provide terrorists with targets, but it's the thing that he's focused on. Um, sometimes even more sophisticated analyses might unintentionally remain quite narrow. So I don't know if any, how familiar people are with uh, a paper in International Security by Stuart Kaufman on the role of symbolic politics in ethnic conflict. 
But that's quite a sophisticated model, quite an influential model in the international relations literature. But again, principally focuses on the way in which ideology creates perceptions of fear and hatred towards um, a victim group. My concern is that although these models emphasize the role of ideology very strongly and portray people as actively endorsing ideology, they focus Continue, they continue to focus in a quite narrow way. There is very little exploration in particular of perpetrator diversity and the idea that within a perpetrator group, different people might in, internalise quite different sorts of ideas that allow them to participate in violence. So that was the first um, model. The, the second set of models are rational choice uh, models, um, which have a similarly motivationally monolithic quality to them. Focus overwhelmingly on fear, fears about security, and perhaps material concerns. A lot of these theories are very sophisticated, and again, would probably recognize that their theories provide a partial model. So I'm thinking of people here like Stathis Kalavas, or Barry Posen, or Benjamin Valentino, all of whom I think are excellent theorists, but they focus primarily on a certain sort of rational choice reasoning behind uh, violence and human rights abuses and vary in the degree that they claim that that exhaustively explains these kind of crimes. Again, however, the picture of perpetrators here is very narrow. Perpetrators are rational choice actors motivated by a central security concern, maybe some kind of material concerns or the desire to control particular areas of territory. The final set of models uh, I call conformity models. They're heavily influenced by research in social psychology. Anyone familiar with figures like Philip Zimbardo, who created the Stanford Prison, Stanford Prison Experiments, uh, which demonstrated that ordinary or apparently ordinary uh, college students would willingly abuse uh, fellow students when they were given the role of prison guards rather than prisoners in a fictional prison, has been very influential in shaping this sort of line of thinking. Um, more focused figures who have done work on mass atrocities include someone like James Waller or a recent paper by John Doris and uh, uh, Dominic Murphy who indeed argue that perpetrators lack moral culpability for atrocities because the real reason why they do what they do is because of conformity, psychological mechanisms of conformity that we would all be vulnerable to if we were put in the position that they do. Again, the picture of perpetrators here is pretty narrow. Perpetrators participate because they unthinkingly conform to either the orders or the social pressures or the dominant ideological models provided by a society. The idea that there is much more to their explanation than that is at least not brought into the theory or not brought into part of the picture. So all of these, I think, focus too narrowly. Right? They give us only a single sort of picture um, of perpetrators. Some, uh, that's a slightly sweeping claim, obviously individual theories sometimes offer more subtlety, but that's my general concern about narrowness in the existing literature. I think underlying this, what we might call causal narrowness, is what I might call a substantive shallowness, right? An unwillingness to really delve very deeply into the substance of ideologies, the actual content of the beliefs that perpetrators hold. I should say, incidentally, that an important exception to a lot of the claims I'm making here are focused case study work on an individual case. Often individual case study researchers have a rather more richer picture of what happened in their particular case study, but that doesn't bleed into overarching comparative theorising. That's, that's my concern, <laughs> I should clarify. Um, so yeah, the comparative, more overarching theorists tend to engage in 
what I think it's useful to think of as a flight from content. When people do talk about ideologies, they tend to think of them as either just broad brush labels, the communist participants in a particular civil war versus the separatist participants, for example, or they sum up ideologies in sort of a couple of lines, a couple of key values, uh, a sweeping narrative about an outgroup that is hated for some particular reason, a certain set of hate narratives, or whatever. Um, that does not, in my view, get to grips with the real causal complexity of ideologies, which is rooted in the particular ideas that actually make them up and the way in which those ideas um, relate to each other. As I say, my very, very fleeting impression is that this broad characterization of research remains to some degree true of work on transitional justice as well, but I am open to you guys challenging me, or indeed informing me that I'm wrong um, about that. What I think is clear is that all of this matters for issues of transitional justice, for prevention and post-conflict research. The kind of image that you might have of perpetrators is centrally connected to what you might do to those perpetrators or with those perpetrators or in an effort to reconstruct a society that is still full of such perpetrators after a conflict or a particular mass atrocity um, has concluded. My argument then is that all of these models, although they contain individual kernels of truth, are too sweeping. And a particular phrase by um, Jacques Semelin, the sociologist, which he targeted against conformity models alone, seems to me to be true of all of these uh, models. Namely, quote, they do not seem sufficiently all-embracing when it comes to grasping all the different faces the perpetrators of massacre can show. Perpetrators, in other words, to refer back to the title of my talk, are unlike minds both in the sense that groups of perpetrators do not operate like a single mind that shares all the beliefs and makes the same decisions, and also in the sense that different members of the perpetrator group have different minds. They have unlike minds that vary in important ways that we need to theorise. So my project then is to grapple with what we might call the substantive and causal diversity of perpetrator ideology, namely the ways in which perpetrators differ in the content of ideas that make up their systems of thinking and in the different causal roles that those ideas might play in enabling them or indeed encouraging them to participate in mass atrocities and human rights abuses. So that's my overview of what I take to be the problems with the, the literature under the status quo. The bulk of the rest of the talk, as I say, is going to try and make some what I take to be important theoretical distinctions to try and give us the a sort of framework to grapple better with the notion of perpetrator diversity. So let me say a couple of brief comments about what I mean by um, uh, ideology. I will not spend too long on this because it's become very boring in social science to spend ages and ages about talking about what you mean by ideology. By ide ideologies, I mean systems of ideas that are stored in memory. I define them as distinctive systems of normative and or purportedly factual ideas, typically shared by members of groups or societies, which underpin individuals' understanding of their political world and guide their political behaviour. Happy to provide a printout of that to people later on if they would like um, to copy it down. Um, I'm influenced in, in defining ideologies in this way by a large number of specialist ideology theorists that I broadly think researchers on violence and human rights abuses ought to pay more attention to. People like Michael Frieden, formerly of Oxford, uh, now Professor Emeritus here, um, and Tayen van Dyck, a Dutch sociologist um, who's written a particularly excellent book um, on uh, ideology. An important component of the way in which this thinks about ideology is that ideology is defined quite broadly. It's not assumed to be, say, a fanatical worldview or a worldview that must be false or a worldview that must be dominating or exploitative. There are many different forms of ideologies. And importantly, this is a somewhat cognitive understanding of ideologies. Right? Ideologies are rooted in minds and are stored in memory. Now, an implication of that is that 
we need to talk about two quite distinct analytical constructs when we think about ideology, namely personal ideologies, which are the actual systems of ideas that exist within an individual person's mind, and what we more commonly want to talk about, collective ideologies, which are a theoretical abstraction about certain similarities of the ideologies um, of various members of a certain group. I, and I hope people won't disagree with this, don't think that there are such things as group minds. When we talk about there being group ideologies or organisational ideologies or national ideologies, we are engaging in abstraction very similar to when we talk about people speaking English or speaking French. Right? Everyone who speaks English speaks it in a slightly different way. But there are, fortunately, functional enough similarities about the language that they speak that we can productively talk about them as all speaking English. I think that's very similar to what we're doing when we're saying that a certain group of actors are socialist or nationalist or something like that. So that's a, a framework that I think is useful to talk about this a bit more precisely. Importantly, my conception of ideology includes identities. I reject that occasional dichotomy you find in some of the literature between identities and ideologies as if these things are different. Anyone familiar with Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations thesis, for example, it involves the claim that conflict is no longer about ideology, it's now about cultural identity. I just think that's nonsense. All ideologies involve certain notions of identity, and all ide identities make reference or are embedded in broader ideologies. So I consider those things um, to be the same or not to be the same, to, to be heavily bound up together. Um, so the key claim then, the key claim of ideological diversity that I want to argue here, is that within a perpetrator group that in some meaningful sense we might say shares a collective ideology, there are very important differences between the personal ideologies that actually make up the different members um, of that group. Even to the degree that we can make generalisations about the collective ideologies, most people in the group will be an exception to some of those generalisations, and some particularly salient minorities in the group might be radically exceptions to the overarching notion of the collective ideology. Um, so to give an example maybe, when we talk about something like Al-Qaeda ideology, perhaps a particularly problematic construction given the fragmented cellular structure of that particular organisation, we're drawing some generalisations which might legitimately apply to a large number of its members, but each of those members, I would argue probably every single one of those members, may violate some of those uh, generalisations, and indeed large numbers of people within Al-Qaeda may not really be accurately described by that generalisation at all. That doesn't, however, I think mean that it's irrelevant to talk about uh, Al-Qaeda having that collective ideology. So I think then in order to sort of think about it in a more structured way, how different members of a perpetrator group might commit human rights abuses um, and mass atrocities. We need to unpack more what the different things are that ideology might do and what the different images of perpetrators might then be that we could end up with by thinking about those different causal roles of ideology. Um, so I'm going to start by very, very briefly running through different things I think ideology might do. I'm running through this quite uh, quickly because I don't think it's the most interesting part of the discussion for our purposes here. It's also the thing that I am going to go into more detail uh, when I do uh, my talk on Thursday uh, for the Iola Colloquium. So anyone who's very interested, do come along um, and listen to me give uh, uh, that talk as well. But the central claim here is that ideology does a lot of different things. It is not, contrary to the way it's often portrayed in the literature, just about providing hatred, certain stereotypes of outgroups, or perhaps a certain love of violence. 
I suggest that there are seven important distinctions which classify different things that ideology might do. So distinction number one, ideologies can serve as factors of escalation towards violence or human rights abuses or as factors of restraint, escalation and restraint. Scott Strauss has, again, a big, big fan of Scott Strauss. Scott Strauss has also written a paper recently arguing or pointing out, because I think he's definitely right, that theorists have massively overemphasized or overfocused on the escalatory causes um, of violence and human rights abuses and considerably under-theorized factors of restraint. There is no prima facie reason why that ought to be the proper order of priority when you try and explain something. If you think of a case where a human rights abuse does occur and one where it doesn't, it's just as plausible that the case where it doesn't occurs because of a weakness, uh, sorry, because, uh, occurs because restraining causes are stronger and not just because escalatory causes are weaker. Either possibility exists. So when we think about the role of ideology, we need to think about its potential role both in encouraging violence and also in restraining violence. That's the first distinction. The second distinction is that we need to think about ideology's role both as a, motive, a, a, a provider of motivations for violence and a provider of legitimations for violence. By that I mean that when people engage in violence, they do so through some combination of uh, ideas and factors that make them feel two things about the violence. First, that the violence is desirable, and second, that the violence is permissible. And those are quite different things. You could easily believe that something is desirable but impermissible and therefore not do it, or that something is permissible but not desirable and therefore not do it. So it is important for perpetrators to believe, I suggest, that violence is both desirable and permissible. And that links with different processes of what I call motivation and legitimation. Ideology might shape either of those things. And importantly, it might shape one of those things for some people, even though the other is not ideological. So a common theme in the literature is that, well, ideology wasn't very important for certain groups of, groups of perpetrators because their actions really seem to be motivated by material self-interest, say, plunder or looting or uh, careerist self-interest or whatever. That might be a perfectly plausible claim. It might be that their motivations had very little to do with ideology. But their legitimations, their reasons why they thought that such violence was permissible, might be very importantly bound up with ideology. Notably, most of the time, people motivated by self-interest or to desire to do well in their careers don't conduct mass violence against certain groups as a way of achieving those motives. So I think that legitimations and motivations both matter. A third distinction is between what I call deliberation and rationalization. Namely the idea that ideology might both inform the actual deliberative choices that perpetrators make to engage in violence, and or it might uh, play an important role in rationalizing choices that were primarily made for other reasons. Commonly theorists in the literature arbitrarily choose one of these processes to focus on. So theorists who tend towards the endorsement model that I described earlier just naturally affirm that ideology must have been an actual factor in people making the deliberative choices they made to engage in violence. Often the possibility that it was a, rational, a rationalization of decisions that were made for other reasons is just dismissed or not even considered. Vice versa, sceptics of the role of ideology often raise the possibility that ideology might merely be a post hoc rationalisation and then very quickly move to assuming that that must be the case, that it could not have influenced um, uh, the actual deliberations over choices that led to violence. I see no reason why ideology should be compartmentalised in that way. Even for the same individual, it might have some role in shaping deliberation and then also function very importantly as a rationalisation. 
Another important claim that I think worth highlighting here as well is that it's very easy to assume that rationalization is causally unimportant, right? You might think, well, people make the decisions to engage in the violence, that's what causes it, and then the rationalization happens after the fact, so it couldn't be a cause of it. I think that's a mistake because it overlooks the fact that campaigns of violence tend to be reiterative, right? So having participated in violence once, you often then participate in multiple episodes of violence later in a campaign. Successfully rationalizing your early involvement in violence may well be an important causal precondition for continuing to be involved in violence as you go on. And although we might think that most people rationalize successfully, often there is desertion rate. There is a desertion rate in campaigns of violence, right? And that could, at least in principle, reflect an inability to rationalize violence successfully. The fourth distinction I draw is between, and I'm borrowing this really, it's not mine, um, from... Um, Francisco Gutierrez-Sanin and Elizabeth Jean Wood, who recently wrote a very excellent article on the role of ideology in civil war, a distinction between instrumental and constitutive roles for ideology. Namely the idea that ideology might be used by actors to, for various instrumental purposes. So for example, recruiting other people to your organization, legitimating your actions in front of a domestic audience, um, soliciting um, uh, funding from superpower patrons or diasporas, for example. All of these essentially don't require that the ideology do anything within the minds of the violent actors themselves, but they use it for instrumental reasons to gain various goods, um, services, or symbolic resources um, from others. That's distinct from a constitutive role, where it actually shapes the understandings in some way, the ideas, the cognition of the violent actors themselves. Again, I tend to think that in the literature, theorists arbitrarily focus on one of these. So there's lots of work on the role of ideology in civil wars, for example, which almost uniformly assumes that they must play an instrumental role. Largely backgrounds or ignores or explicitly assumes that there must be no weight to the role of the ideology in constituting actors and perpetrators' own understanding. Again, I see no reason why that would be true. It seems important, at least in principle, to consider the potential role um, that ideology might play instrumentally and constitutively. The fifth distinction um, is between what... I will call descriptive and evaluative beliefs. We're now moving into a, a distinction about the <coughs> substantive ideas that actually make up an ideology. It's very, very common when people talk about ideologies to assume that what we must be talking about are sort of packages of strongly emotional, uh, strongly evaluative ideas. So people often talk about, say, socialism or liberalism, whatever, being comprised of values like freedom or order or equality or so forth. That's all very important. It's an important dimension of ideologies. But I think it's also important to focus on ideology's descriptive dimension, namely that ideologies also package and rely on assumptions and beliefs about matters of fact, or that are purported to be about matters of fact. So, for example, liberalism centrally rests on certain beliefs about what imposing or creating markets would lead to and what the outcome of distributing resources by markets are. Perhaps most relevantly for our purpose, the ideologies that justify massive human rights abuses make descriptive claims about what the victims of those abuses or of that violence have been doing. They have been conspiring against us and organising violence against our state. They were the guilty party in this particular um, humiliation of our nation, for example. These are, although heavily bound up with evaluative beliefs, description and evaluation are very uh, intertwined, uh, importantly evolve descriptive statements about the world as well. So I think it's important to not lose sight of those components of ideologies either. Sixth distinction um, between what we might call, call uh, hotter and cooler emotions. Okay? I'm very influenced by any of you who uh, 
uh, aware of him, uh, uh, Todd Hall, one of the new uh, Associate Professors in International Relations in the department who works um, on the role of emotion um, in international conflict and international politics. Uh, Todd is, is part of a broader movement, uh, or be it a loose movement in international relations and international political sociology, uh, to bring recent findings from neuroscience into uh, the study of politics. In particular, the findings that suggest that there is not a proper distinction between reason and emotion, that that is an outmoded scientific distinction, because rationality and reasoning is impossible, or at least in a decision-making sense, without emotional components. A lot of this is I'm happy to talk about this more at the end if you want, but a lot of this is based upon uh, the finding that individuals with damage to the emotional centres of their brain cannot make choices. They can analyse costs and benefits in a very, very schematic way, but can't attach any emotional valence to any of the outcomes and therefore find it extremely difficult um, to make choices. Therefore, what becomes important, Todd um, and uh, his co-author, um, Andrew Ross, they do a lot of work together, suggest is rather than having this sort of flat distinction between reason and emotion, is to distinguish between hot emotions and cooler emotions. Cooler emotions attach affect to things. Hotter emotions do that as well, but also actively interfere with other cognitive process, processes. Um, there's a hell of a lot more I could say on that, but I'm just going to move over it for the moment because it's not the distinction on which I'm most interested in, in, in talking to you about. Final distinction, um, a distinction between what is often in international relations literature called preferences over outcomes and preferences over strategies, so outcomes and strategies. Often when people talk about ideologies, they assume that the main thing ideologies do is provide ultimate objectives. They explain why a group wants to do what it does. Um, you know, what is it that the intra-Hamway are trying to achieve? What is Al-Qaeda um, uh, aiming at? What world did the Nazis want to create? Ideologies do all of those things, but ideologies also often prescribe strategies. They make statements about what an efficacious way to reach a certain outcome is. In the, in the simplest language, they talk about both means and ends. And in particular, one of the reasons, an important re uh, um, uh, strategic belief that ideologies often contribute relevance to human rights abuses and violence is that they shape beliefs about the efficacy of violence. So if you want to explain why a, a regime engages in widespread uh, torture, for example, given that a lot of empirical analysis of torture suggests it is in fact a very irrational um, uh, strategy to engage in, it does not provide you with reliable information, it does not actually enable you or empower you to um, uh, uh, engage in activities or policies that actually improve your security, you need to understand the, the way in which within certain ideological worldviews, torture is strongly believed to be efficacious. It's not a self-evident belief from the world, it's a component of ideologies about the right strategy to pursue security. Okay, so that's a whole series of distinctions. Now, I think that those distinctions helpfully unpack or allow us to more fully explore um, what I call the causal matrix between ideology and violence or between ideology um, and human rights um, abuses. Now, it's important to say that I don't think ideology is the only thing that matters in causing violence. That would be, in my opinion, a very mad view. Importantly, I would tend to place a lot of emphasis on things like underlying psychological drives and motives that shape what perpetrators do, in particular drives for security, material interests, um, self-esteem, I think self-esteem is probably something that in social science we need to put increasing weight on in understanding perpetrator behaviour. And also um, habituation um, and the arduousness of new thinking and moving out of established practices of behaviour um, or thought. I think those underlying psychological drives matter. 
And then I also think that various forms of situational pressure matter. So I think that things like conformity, the desire to obey or the, the inclination to obey others, so the stress of situations also plays an important role. And those two carry with them in my understanding, at least, a lot of the sort of standard causes that people talk about in international relations, like context of war um, or uh, certain sorts of regime type or the impunity of certain kinds of organisational structures. Um, but nevertheless, I think ideology alongside those things provides an important role. So then the next, the next sort of uh, set of theoretical distinctions that I think we then need to make, that, that, that this uh, causal matrix sort of allows us to make, is to think in a slightly deeper way about different sorts of perpetrators. And I want to describe uh, or provide yet more distinctions for you um, uh, of two types, right? The first type will be the role that the perpetrators play in the violence, and the second type will be a, 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 a taxonomy distinguished by what I call internalization state or namely the way in which a perpetrator has internalised violence-justifying or atrocity-justifying or human rights abuse-justifying um, ideas. So I talk in general in my work about five main types of perpetrators, and I see this, this taxonomy incidentally as providing a slightly better unpackaging of the classic sort of elite mass distinction or elite ordinary perpetrator distinction, which is more common in the um, in the literature. So namely, I think we should be interested in all of policy makers who actually initiate the decisions to engage in violence or initiate decisions that lead to a certain uh, human rights abuse. Secondly, direct killers or direct perpetrators, when it's not killing, when it's something like torture, who actually carry out the violence against victims. Third, indirect killers who play a variety of um, uh, critical and closely related to violence, uh, organisational roles, um, but ones that don't involve the actual directing of the violence towards the victim in physical uh, terms. Typically, when we're talking about these kind of people, we mean people involved in bureaucracies um, that link policymakers to direct killers. Fourthly, supporters who create various forms of social and ideological pressure and demands for the violence, but play no causal role beyond that in actually um, executing it or distributing it. And finally, bystanders. A lot of literature, as I'm sure everyone in the room is aware, suggests that bystanders play a critical causal role through their passivity in making violence uh, possible. So we need to talk about them um, as well. I don't assume, in fact I think it's a very important assumption that we ought to make, that a, as it were, theory of what ideology does in human rights abuses would be consistent through all those five groups. I think it's the most plausible thing we ought to uh, argue is that these different groups probably have, or, or we should make different generalizations about these different sorts of groups and ideology. So for example, there are good reasons to believe, and this isn't a particularly controversial suggestion, but perhaps one that is more latent, I think, in a lot of scholarship than I would like. It's not, it's not that controversial to suggest that policymakers are more likely to display active endorsement of an ideology than are, say, um, uh, direct killers or indirect killers. Policy uh, 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 makers, with the possible exception of situations where they are incredibly strongly pressured by um, so-called supporters, um, generally have a considerable degree of, or, of autonomy. And one of the important findings in a lot of research uh, on mass atrocities and human rights abuses is that the claim that there were no other options is usually itself an ideological check, uh, claim. And indeed, Leaders often try and exhaust other options before they resort to strategies um, of human rights abuses. Um, when they don't, when it seems like they choose these policies relatively early, that suggests a strong degree of willing endorsement of the ideology um, in question. By converse, indirect killers and direct killers could have their explanation 
um, explained to some degree by non-ideological pressures such as coercion or situational incentives like careerist incentives and material incentives or, say, peer pressure and small group solidarity dynamics. I don't think any of those things explain perpetrator behaviour as much as some people do, but I think it's plausible to assume that they play a bigger role in, in, in shaping the behaviour of direct and indirect killers um, uh, than ideology compared to policymakers. Similarly, bystanders may be even less affected by ideology, although crucial latent ideas may still be um, uh, important. So I think, again, a theory of the role of ideology needs to make nuanced distinctions between these different roles. I also think, and, and perhaps here is where I be begin to think that we start to make the, the most sort of um, analytical gain in terms of being able to explain violence or analyse violence, I also think we need to make important distinctions between the internalisation states of different um, perpetrators. So the remainder of what I'm going to say, and I will try and not be too long, um, is to distinguish six different types of perpetrators, and I will try and provide examples um, of each of them. So the first type of perpetrator I call the true believer. Um, true believers internalise relevant atrocity-justifying ideology or human rights-abusing uh, ideology with high levels of three things. Um, conviction, consciousness, and centrality, right? They display high levels of conviction in the claims that make up the ideology. They do so quite consciously and actively identify with that ideology, and the ideology is very central to their behaviour um, in the world. Very easy to think up examples, perhaps very obviously, someone like Hitler or Bin Laden, we would assume to be a true believer um, in their own ideologies. Um, equally, someone like Anders Bering Breivik, um, who before the Otoya massacre in Norway published hundreds of pages detailing his own ideology that he had spent many years uh, working on to explain what he was doing, seems like a fairly good model of a true believer. Equally, perhaps to give you a slightly more... Um, an unconventional example, someone like Arthur Harris, the head of British Bomber Command in uh, World War II. Absolute conviction and consciousness and centrality in the belief that mass bombing of civilians was the way to win the war. Well charted in his correspondence with other members of the British government. Very, very crucial to understanding why Allied bombing policy in World War II took the course that it did. It's not necessarily the case that all true believers love violence as a corollary of their strong internalisation of an ideology. I'll read you a uh, quite long quote by uh, Lev Kopolev, if anyone's not aware of Lev Kopolev. He's a famous um, uh, member of uh, the Bolshevik party who participated in Stalinist purges in uh, the 1930s and later turned dissident against the Soviet um, regime. And in his memoirs reported, with the rest of my generation, I firmly believe that the ends justified the means. Our great goal was the universal triumph of communism. For the sake of that goal, everything was permissible. For I was convinced that I was accomplishing the great and necessary transformation of the countryside. That in the days to come, the people who lived there would be better off for it. That their distress and suffering were a result of their own ignorance or the machinations of the class enemy. I would still my doubts the way I had learnt to. The logic of class struggle, objective historical need, the concepts of conscience, honour, humaneness we dismissed as idealistic prejudices, intellectual or bourgeois, and hence perverse. This is a figure deeply in and in a very convicted way within ruling ideology. But not someone who didn't feel doubt, not someone who really wanted to be perpetrating huge, um, uh, hugely inhumane acts against victims, certainly not someone who hated the people that he was conducting violence against, but he was a true believer. The second category of believers I call adherents. Um, 
namely individuals who have internalized ideology to a large degree of important ways, but with considerably less conviction, consciousness, or centrality, and often with other motives primarily driving their behavior. So an example might be a lot of concentration camp guards in the Nazi Holocaust, for example. Um, the commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Hoss, later reported of one of the early concentration camps that he served in, that the commandant, quote, had drummed the notion of dangerous enemies of the state so firmly and persuasively into the heads of his SS men and had been preaching this for so many years that any man who knew no better believed in it. I also believed. So these individuals have, with quite high rates of con con conviction, internalized certain ideas, but they were not drawn independently and do not drive themselves forward through life out of a sincere belief in the ideology. They're not true believers, fanatics, or passions for the cause. They have, however, become adherents to various components. A third category I call conformers, um, which roughly adhere to Hannah Arendt's presentation of Eichmann, um, although most people would now, or most historians now, accept that Arendt's portrayal of Eichmann is actually fairly inaccurate. Perhaps most of the members of, say, Police Battalion 101, for anyone who's familiar with um, Christopher Browning's work on them, or Charlie Company committing the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. Individuals who selectively may have internalized certain ideas of the ideology, and these may be important, particularly in an unconscious or latent way, for making them willing to commit a human rights abuse against um, victims, but are largely unthinkingly conforming to the pressures placed on them. They're not acting out of a deep ideological convic conviction in the rightness of their actions necessarily. Fourth category, I'm trying to go forward so it's not over to overrun. Um, psychopaths, these are very few in number. A very important finding of contemporary research on mass atrocities um, and genocide is that the vast, overwhelming majority of perpetrators are ordinary people in most of these classical psychological senses of the term. Perhaps about 5% might be psychopaths. It's worth saying that even for psychopaths, ideology might be important. About 5-10% to 10 of people in society are apparently psychopaths. Most of them do not engage in violence to serve their ends. They spend their lives quite happily, uh, largely instrumentally exploiting people within, say, corporations, for example. So deciding to then engage in violence may still be importantly rooted in ideology and how ideology guides them in certain directions. Fifthly, um, what we might call the ambivalent or partial believer, a figure who, in their personal ideology, contains restraining elements as well as escalatory elements, and therefore is not simply convinced that what they're doing is right, but in their, unbav in their unba ambivalent, but overcomes their ambivalence through various ideological notions such that they are still able to participate in the crimes or the abuses. Um, a, a good example of this might be someone like Churchill, involved in organising mass bombing in the war. Churchill frequently expressed doubts about the efficacy and morality of mass bombing of German uh, uh, civilians. Um, famously, the famous quote from him, are we beasts for doing this? Um, yet had sufficiently internalised certain other components of the sorts of ideologies that made bombing look acceptable, that in the end he would always agree to go ahead with the policy. So he was ambivalent, a partial believer in what we might call bombing ideology, but his partial belief was critical in explaining why he ended up doing what he did. Final category, the reluctant killer. Largely unconvinced, they have many restraining ideas of ideology in their mind, and ideology may in fact play a very small role in driving them forwards uh, to engage in violence. But situational pressures, for example, coercion, may still enable them to do so. It's worth saying that the reluctant 
killer or the reluctant perpetrator isn't necessarily unideological in general. A really good example, perhaps, of the reluctant killer would be Kanyal Buchmann, uh, chronicled by Chris Browning in his work on Police Battalion 101. Buchmann joined the Nazi Party in 1937. He was a, a proper Nazi. He internalised lots of Nazi ideas. But when confronted with massacring Jews in Poland, he told his lieutenant that he simply would in no case, this is a quote, would in no case participate in such an action in which defenseless women and children are shot. So he did internalise important components of regime ideology. He was importantly a Nazi and bought into the collective ideology we would describe as Nazi. But nevertheless, he was a reluctant killer. Important components of his personal ideology explain different behaviour. So I think that the way in which we need to move forwards in theorising human rights abuses and mass atrocities is by thinking about how these different sorts of perpetrators interact within killing organisations. Or perhaps not just organisations, but what we might call something like collective action configurations or groups. Because I'm talking not only about, say, the state or the SS or the inter Hamway, but also small platoons and small groups of perpetrators given certain missions to go out and kill civilians. I think that killing becomes possible when those with the deeper forms of internalisation that I listed at the beginning, say, true believer, adherent, to some degree conformer and maybe psychopaths, come to dominate those configurations of, small, uh, uh, of actors, whether at the macro scale or the micro scale, and make them possible. By contrast, when they don't, when the weaker forms of internalization, the reluctant, the ambivalent or partial believers tend to dominate um, uh, such organizations, this tends to promote moderation, non-implementation, or desertion, and tends to cause campaigns of killing to collapse. So I think that now, huge amount more to say about that and more research to be done on it, but that's the kind of direction in which I want to gesture and which I, I think these moves help us do. Final couple of words. I think that this all matters because it has significant implications for prevention, reconstruction um, and transitional uh, uh, justice. It may well be, for example, that your beliefs about moral culpability of perpetrators require more nuance between different types of perpetrators than has been typical in the past. Um, Given now, I mean, legal culpability might, of course, not always map onto moral culpability, but different sorts of perpetrators and the dominance of different sorts of perpetrators might give us quite radically different moral intuitions about how such perpetrators ought to be treated in a society that is attempting to reconstruct itself after a certain set of atrocities. Perhaps it's even more obvious that in prevention, which balance of the types of perpetrators dominate substantially influence will influence the best or most appropriate prevention or reconstruction policies. If a campaign of violence has been dominated by uh, true believers and adherents, it's probably going to be very, very hard to stop them through ideological appeals, for example. If, however, though th their numbers are relatively small and the majority of a per per perpetrator population or a potential per per perpetrator population are conformers or ambivalent or partial believers or reluctant believers, then interventions, ideological interventions to try and impact the dissemination of ideas in that society might play an important role preventatively or indeed um, reconstructively after um, the event. Now, I'm more keen to hear things from you than I am to hear more things from me. Um, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. But I hope that was clear and interesting uh, and I very much look forward to your comments. So thank you.